pray together. Lord God, we commend to you dearly uh, our brother, Pastor David Wong, and we appreciate so much, God, your hand upon his life and your giftings upon his life too. And we are now ready, Lord, to come under the sound of your word through him, Lord. May he minister your grace and your instruction to us and help each one of us, Lord, to be attentive and to heed your word and to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With the kind of introduction, it's always good to be prayed for. Shall we turn to our Bibles uh, to Matthew 19? I think in your bulletin it says Matthew 9, but it should be Matthew 19. And I'm going to read from verse uh, 24 to the end of the chapter. Could you follow me? I'm reading from the New International Version. Now a man came to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All this I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Then when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be? For us, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundredfold as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Let me just read verse uh, 24 again. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, the title today is The Camel and the Eye of a Needle. And uh, the title reminds me of two proverbs. Um, the first proverb says, The camel does not see its own lump, hum. And the second proverb says, The eye sees all things but its own Lashes. Well, the first is a Moroccan proverb, and the second is a Japanese one. A proverb is defined as wisdom set in wit. In other words, it embodies wisdom, and the wisdom is set in a witty saying. Now, the wit we find in these two proverbs is what we call irony. irony. What is irony? Well, an irony is when a situation is described to us, but what it presents is the opposite of what we expect. In other words, what appears is not what appears to be. We expect to see something, but it is not what we see. So, for example, 
we expect to see something which is closest to us, and yet a camel cannot see its own hum, and the eye cannot see its own lashes. Now try looking at the eyelashes. Can you see them? No, nothing is closer to our eye than our eyelashes, but we can't see them. Nothing is closer to the camel than his own hum, but he can't see it. Now, Jesus uses a lot of irony in his teaching. And irony can make us smile, makes us laugh, but it makes us think. Jesus says, if you want to save your life, you lose it. If you want to be great, be a servant. If you want to be first, you'll be last. Now, in our passage today, we have come across a number of ironies, but I will not tell you what they are. It is a familiar passage, you know the story, and if you listen carefully to the sermon, you may discern at least two ironies in this story. Are you able to see what is not so easily seen? Are you able to see your own hum, even your own eyelashes? Let us pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and as we consider your word, as we look into your word, we pray that you may look into our hearts and plant your word deep in us so that we may know the truth and do it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're looking at a familiar passage today, a man commonly known as the rich young ruler, because this uh, episode is found in all the three synoptic gospels. In Matthew, he's described as a young man. In Luke, he's described as a ruler, a leader. And in all the three gospels, he's described as rich. Now, if someone today were to come to you who is rich, who is young, and who is already a proven leader, we would definitely sit up and pay attention. Now, such a person would be valuable for our church, for our business, for our networking. Now, in the days of Jesus, this rich young ruler would have been a most promising prospect to be a disciple of Jesus. And yet, as we will see in this conversation, as we read just now, Jesus did not make it easy for him to be his disciple. In fact, Jesus made it so difficult for him that the, the would-be disciple never became a disciple of Jesus. So from the outset of this story, we learn that we need not make things easy for people to follow Jesus. And we should not be afraid to spell out the terms of discipleship and to watch them walk away because they do not accept those terms. So as a church, it's better for us to have a few people who have counted the cost of following Jesus and who choose to follow him than to have many people who have never counted the cost of following Jesus and who have no intention of paying the cost of following Jesus. But of course, the best is to have many people who, have, who are following Jesus who have counted the cost of following him. When we look at this rich young ruler, we will see that the cost he was asked to pay was so high in fact, so high would cost him everything, and Jesus never asked for anything less than that, either from him or from any one of us. So let's consider this account along a very simple outline. Um, I'm not sure whether I've heard this outline before. This, basically, this story is about a man who came to the right person, he asked the right question, he got the right answer, but he went and he did the wrong thing. So firstly, he came to the right person. 
Now note that he came running to Jesus according to the Gospel of Mark. And when he got to Jesus, according to Mark, he fell on his knees before Jesus. So he was eager to meet Jesus, came running. He was respectful towards Jesus because he came kneeling before him. He was full of enthusiasm and admiration. He must have heard a lot about Jesus and had wanted to meet him. Now, sometimes we wonder why he wanted so badly to meet Jesus. Now, bear in mind, this young man had already gotten made in his life. He had wealth, he had position, he had everything. What would he want from Jesus? Now, I can think of two reasons. Firstly, I think he wanted some kind of public endorsement. Um, some kind of public endorsement. When I was serving with Hagia Institute, which is a leadership training organization in Hawaii, I had, to, had the opportunities of meeting hundreds of leaders from all over the world, and they come from all walks of life. Now, the younger ones I find to be particularly interesting. You know, they have a zest about them, a confidence, and yet often their outward image hides an inner insecurity. And I find that the younger ones are usually the ones who are hungry for affirmation, for recognition. And I wonder if this rich young man was like that. He was looking for recognition for endorsement. And what better person to get it from than Jesus? Now, the one who was drawing crowds to himself, performing miracles, teaching with authority. He wanted Jesus to say something to him in front of the people that would boost his standing, that would endorse his leadership and perhaps enhance his status. Now, that could be another reason why this young man came to Jesus. I think this young man was generally concerned about his spiritual condition. For all his wealth, he felt something was missing. And for all his youthfulness, he felt unfulfilled. And for all the power and position he had, he felt that he did not have life, eternal life. In other words, he was searching, he was asking, he wanted answers and so far, no one had been able to give these answers to him. So just as he might be looking for public endorsement, he could also be looking for personal fulfillment. He needed personal assurance about his spiritual condition. Now, for all these years, he had been a devout Jew. He had kept the law of Moses. And yet, despite all this, he was unsure about his standing before God, his salvation and life after this life, eternal life. So he came to Jesus for public endorsement, for personal fulfillment. He came to the right person. Jesus was someone who had the answers. And so the young man asked his question. And his question basically was, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So he asked a question the right question. In fact, this question is the most important question that we can think of, that we can ever ask in life. Because it is a question not about material things. The, this young man already had it. It was not about this life, because this young man seemed to have made it in this life. The question was about spiritual matters. It was about his soul and about life beyond this earthly life. Now, the expression to get eternal life is repeated in three different ways in this passage. In verse 23, to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 25, to enter, or to, in verse 25, to be saved. 
Now, to get eternal life, to enter the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven or to be saved, they all mean the same thing. They're different aspects of the same thing. To be saved means that we are lost and in danger or some dire danger. To enter the kingdom of God or to enter the kingdom of heaven means that we are still outside the kingdom where God reigns as king. To get eternal life means, well, simply we don't have it now. No. And we desire to have it at some point of time. Now, all these expressions tell us about our spiritual condition. Now, we are lost in sin. We are destined for eternal damnation. If this life is all that we are concerned about, we are in trouble. Because this life is not the only life. It is only the prelude to the life to come. This life in the mortal body is infected by sin. And unless we do something about it, we will spend eternity outside God's kingdom. And that was a concern of the young man. And it should be a concern of every one of us here. The young man came to the right person. He asked the right question. And he got the right answer. Look at Jesus' answer. Jesus said, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. Or in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, he says, why call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Now, that's a strange reply. Now, it seems that Jesus is denying that he's good or that he's God. Now, I do not think so. I think there are other occasions before this episode and after this episode where Jesus accepted it when he was called God. For example, when Satan called him God, he didn't object. When the disciples worshipped him as God, he didn't object. When the religious leaders accused him for claiming to be God, he did not object. Now, Jesus did not deny that he is God. Probably what is happening here is Jesus responding to the young man's perceived flattery. Now, this young man was trying to butter up Jesus, to smooth talk him. And Jesus saying to him, be careful who you call good. It is a word you reserve only for God, because only God is truly good. And you should not use this word loosely for anyone and everyone. In fact, I suspect that it is a word that the young man would have used of himself, because as we see later on, he claimed that he had observed all the commandments of, in the law of Moses. So he must have thought that he was pretty good. And with that caution, Jesus directed the young man to the Ten Commandments, mentioning five of them. And what are the five commandments he mentioned in verses 18 and 19? Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Note that Jesus did not mention the commandments dealing with man's relationship with God, only man's relationship with man. He did not say the commandments, or he did not mention the commandments about having no other gods or keeping the Sabbath holy and so on. Now, these five commandments he mentioned have to do with man's relationship with man. But you notice that he left out one commandment, and that's the last commandment in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. This Jesus did on purpose because he reserved it for the punchline later on. Now, Jesus was holding up these commandments, the law of Moses, up to the young man like a mirror. Huh? 
for him to look at look at himself to see what he looks like. So the young man looked at the mirror and he saw someone who was looking pretty good. So his answer is, all this I have kept. Now what do I still lack? Or in Mark chapter 10, he says, Master, all these things I've kept from my youth, ever since I was young, I've kept all these commandments. Now I believe that this young man was sincere. Now he was not boasting. He was he truly believed that he had kept every one of these commandments. You know, the Apostle Paul, before he became a Christian, when he was still a Pharisee, a religious leader, he felt the same way. Because if we read Philippians chapter 3, he said this, concerning the righteousness in the law of Moses, I was blameless. I never broke any one of those commandments. I kept every one of them. In fact, there's some speculation among scholars that this rich young man could have been the Apostle Paul when he was young. Uh, Or Saul, as we knew them. Because Saul before he became Paul, came from a wealthy, illustrious family. He studied in Jerusalem. He belonged to the religious elite. He was young, once, like this young man, and he felt morally upright and religiously blameless. Well, it's only a speculation. But whether it's Saul or Paul or some other person, Jesus was moved by this young man's declaration. We read in Mark chapter 10 that Jesus, beholding him, loved him. Or in another version, that Jesus looked at him in the eye and felt a deep love for him. Jesus, as it were, looked into the eyes of this young man, looked deep into his heart, and he saw something that the young man had not seen and had not known. Something in him was holding him back from entering the kingdom of God, from inheriting eternal life, from being saved. And speaking in a tone full of love, Jesus delivered the punchline. And that came from the last of the Ten Commandments, the last commandment. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. In the Gospel of Mark, we read Jesus saying to the young man, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, then come, take up the cross, and follow me. You see, this young man was missing one commandment which he had not kept, and that is the last commandment. So as far as the five commandments are concerned, uh, he kept every one of them. Uh, It was this last commandment that he did not keep. So we could say that as far as all the other commandments relating to man's relationship with man, He passed. But this last commandment is a tricky one because it is the only commandment that's described or that's observed in the heart. You see, all the other commandments are observed or violated outwardly. You steal with your hand, you lie with your mouth, you murder with a weapon, and you commit adultery with someone. No, they are all outward acts. And because this young man had never committed any of these acts, he thought he was good. He was blameless. He was righteous. But Jesus exposed him to one area in his life where he had broken the commandment. He had coveted. He had acquired wealth, possessions, treasures. He was not willing to let go of them. All that he possessed had become his God. And that was what kept him from the true and living God. So that was the answer of Jesus to the young man. His uh, his question was, What do I lack? 
And Jesus' answer was, what you lack is not a problem. It's what you have. What you lack is not a problem. It's what you have. You see the paradox there? Jesus saying to him, you have too much. You don't lack anything. You have too much. Go and give it away. So this young man came to the right person. He asked the right question. He got the right answer. But, as we'll see, he did the wrong thing. But let me point out this, at this time that Jesus did not tell everyone to sell everything they had in order to follow him. Remember Matthew? When Matthew began following Jesus, Jesus never asked him to sell everything. Matthew did it on his own. He gave up his lucrative tax collecting business to follow Jesus. In the same way, when Jesus went to the home of Zacchaeus, he didn't tell Zacchaeus to sell everything to follow him. In fact, Zacchaeus on his own said he will return whatever he has cheated from people on his own accord. But for this rich young ruler, the need has to do with his possession. He had too much, and he was not willing to give it up. And we read in verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. So, that's the story. The young man came to the right person, asked the right question, got the right answer, but he did the wrong thing. And this verse where he says he went away sad because he had great wealth is one of those sad verses in the Bible. Here's someone who did everything right until the last part. He came to Jesus with the confidence that he lived a good life, but he went away unable to do the one thing which Jesus asked him to do. Well, what is Jesus saying here? I think Jesus is telling us that salvation is not earned by doing good. It is earned by not doing what you cannot do. To receive from God what God gives by grace, we have to come to him with our hands empty and open. If we refuse to let go of what we have, we will not be able to receive what God wants to give us. You see, when a young man came to Jesus, Jesus asked him only for one thing, and that is total surrender. So Jesus asked of us to surrender that part of our life that is the hardest to give up. And for the young man, it was his possessions. For us, it may be something else. I have a friend who understood total surrender when his wife fell into a coma. And one day on a, on a business trip in Taiwan, she collapsed. Uh, she was flown back to a home in Jakarta, Indonesia, where she lay in a coma for four months. I still remember visiting her in the hospital with my friend. She was just lying there in a coma for months. And during the time, my friend struggled long and hard with the Lord. And he shared that it was at this time he realized what it meant what it meant to surrender to God 100%. He said that up to the point he surrendered to the Lord 99%, and God was waiting for that final 1%. And he finally surrendered and switched off the life support and gave up the wife he loved. Now, many of us call Jesus Lord, but we go on living our life as if it is our own. Now, Jesus is calling us to a life of full and total surrender. And what could be holding us back? And what is it that's holding us back from the Lord? 
Well, Jesus used this opportunity to teach two things. One, warning about riches, and the other, promise about rewards. Warning about riches. We have already read it. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, note how Jesus put it in very vivid terms. The camel is the largest animal in Palestine. And the eye of a needle is the smallest hole you can think of. It's hard to put a thread through the eye of a needle, not to say a camel. Now, basically, Jesus is saying it's impossible. It's not possible. Now, we read that the disciples were astonished at what Jesus said because in the days of the disciples, you know, riches and wealth were seen as evidence of God's favor and blessing. In fact, in the eyes of the disciples then, the wealthy people were thought of to have secured a place in the kingdom of God because they were so blessed by God with wealth. And also because of the blessing of wealth, they had more time to perform all the rituals and religious rites. So they must be righteous in the eyes of God. So we read in verse 25, the disciples said, if the rich people cannot be saved, then who then can be saved? If rich people cannot, save, cannot be saved, what hope is there for us poor people? And that is when Jesus declared, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so Jesus, again, is setting up the basis for salvation. It's not going to be achieved by man. Salvation will be achieved by God. Salvation will not come by what we can do, but what God had done for us. And the more we hold on to what we have achieved and what we have possessed, the less likely we are going to let God take charge of our lives. And the more we depend on ourselves for salvation, the less we will depend on God. To follow Jesus, we have to let him lead and take control. We have to let go of what holds us back from Jesus. Now, often we think of this as a zero-sum equation. No? We let go, we lose. We hold on, we win. But Jesus here issued a warning about riches. He, as you issue a warning about riches, he also issued a promise of rewards. What is the promise? Well, we'll see that this is a paradox, paradox in the way God works. Jesus asked, or Peter asked Jesus this question. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Verse 27. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now, this is a question that I think many of us ask we always ask the question, what is there for us? Or what is in it for us? Now we know that Peter loved comparing himself with others. And here's an excellent example of how Peter compared himself with this young man. And he was saying to Jesus, look, this young man didn't follow you, but we did. This, man, this young man didn't give up everything to follow you, we did. So Jesus Peter's attitude was, so, since we have done it, what is in it for us? Now, his attitude was not quite right. He came across as calculating, mercenary. He's saying, we have given up so much. How much are you going to give us in return? Now, notice that Jesus did not rebuke Peter. Instead, he gave Peter and the disciples a wonderful promise. 
and this is found in verse 19. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. I like the verse that's found in Mark chapter 10, which is a fuller version where it says, I tell you the truth, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Okay, in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions, and in age to come eternal life. Now it goes to show that God never asks us for something without giving us something in return. But I want us to know two things here in the promise. One is that we will receive this in this time. In other words, in this world. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven. God's promise to us is if we are patient and persevering, we will see reward even in this life. Maybe not in the same measure as we'll see in heaven, but we will begin to see it in this life. And secondly, it will come with persecutions, with sacrifice, with pain, with hardship. And I remember as a young man of 20, I heard the call of the Lord to go into the ministry. I went to Bible college to prepare for the ministry. I remember reading this promise of Jesus, and I took the promise to heart. After I completed my theological studies, first in Singapore, and my postgraduate studies in England, I came back to pastor church, which I did for almost 20 years. Uh, when my wife and I got married, we decided not to buy an HDB flat. Instead, for the first 10 years of our marriage, we lived in a rented flat, which was quite irregular, unusual. And the reason was because we want, didn't want to tie ourselves down in case the Lord should call us to serve him in another part of the world. In any case, uh, the other reason, actually, the other reason is that we didn't have the money. No, we didn't have the money to buy a flat. In fact, when I married uh, my wife, Jenny, uh, I just come out of Bible college, and I was broke. I still remember in my POSB account, it was about $50. And one of the most embarrassing moments of my life was I could not pay the dowry which my mother-in-law asked of me. Now, I had to bargain for a 50% discount, and even then, I could not pay up when the deadline came. Um, I have two brothers, one two years older than I and one two years younger than I. They did not go as far as I did in education. Neither, neither of them went beyond their old level. Uh, a few years after I was married, my father asked me, uh, he sat down with me and he said, you know, David, I don't understand. You studied the most. Now, you even went to England, you came back with a degree. Now, how is it that your two brothers, one who left school in SEC 2 and the other left school after SEC 4, both have their own flats, they have their own cars, and they even have their own domestic help. And you don't have any one of this. No? It was true. We didn't own our flat, we didn't have a car, and we didn't have a domestic help. No, my father's question really cut me to the heart. I had no answer. I was waiting for God to fulfill his promise. And I'm glad my father who eventually became a believer, lived long enough to see... Jenny and me own a flat, drive a car, and for two years, we had a domestic help. Uh, but if my father had lived longer, he would have seen with his own eyes God fulfilling his promise in giving to me and my wife more than any one of my siblings in my family. We have had the opportunities to live abroad for extended periods of time uh, in five different parts of the world. We lived in Scotland, in England in Hawaii, in the U.S., in Canada. 
uh, in my ministry, we have made friends, brothers and sisters in more than 100 nations around the world. We can travel to any one of these countries on the five continents and know someone and find a place to stay. So after 40 years in ministry, I can say that God has kept this promise to us much more than we have given up for him. Now that we have considered the story of the rich, rich young ruler, let me return to the question I posed at the beginning. Ironies. Are you able to see at least two ironies in this story? No, an irony is uh, when something is said, but the meaning is opposite of what is expected. So what was said in this passage, but the meaning is the opposite of what is expected. Okay, let me give you the answer. Okay. What was it that appears that was not what appears to be? Firstly, remember the rich young ruler asked the question, what do I still lack? He needed more. He needed to have more. But Jesus pointed out that it is not what he lacked, but what he had that was the problem. So Jesus' answer to his question was, go, sell a possession, then come, follow me. So that is the young man's blind spot. He could not see it. Like a camel who cannot see its own harm or the eye that cannot see its own lashes, the young man could not see what was preventing him from obtaining eternal life. Not what he lacked, but what he had. Secondly, the second irony, and this time it is the blind spot of the disciples. The first is the blind spot of the young man. The second is the blind spot of the disciples. When Peter said, we have left everything to follow you, what then will there be for us? You know, Peter was comparing himself to the young man. While the young man was unwilling to leave to follow Jesus, the disciples and Peter had left everything to follow him. And Peter's idea was, when you give up, you lose. When you keep, you win. He thought he had lost what he had left behind him, but Jesus' answer astounded him. Jesus' answer is, no, you have not lost, but you have gained. Instead, in fact, you have gained much, much more. So the irony of the camel and the eye of needle lies in the ability to see what God can do. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And this is a blind spot of the young man as well as the disciples. One refused to let go because he had too much, and the other let go but could not see what there was to gain and thought they had lost everything. I want to close with, a, I want to sum up with two points and close the simple exercise. Uh, let me just sum up. I think the first thing we want to remember is the hindrance to following Jesus or the greatest hindrance to discipleship is not in what we lack but in what we have. And this is so true for us here in Singapore because we have so much. And the more we have, the more we hold on, the harder it is for us to follow Jesus. Secondly, letting go is not easy. Why are we afraid to let go? Because we think by letting go we are losing. But what if letting go is gaining? The rich young ruler could not let go because of his health. Well, his wealth, because he thought that it would be a loss. But Jesus didn't just tell him to go and sell. Jesus said, come and follow. 
Jesus is not asking him to give up something for nothing. Jesus is asking him to give up something for something better. When God asks us to give up something, it is so that he can give, up, give us something that is better. It's never a loss. It is always a gain. And if we are patient, we will, find, we will find, as I have found, that the gain will be a hundredfold or more. You see, Jesus asks us for everything. God asks us for all. But God is no man's debtor. He always gives us back more than he takes from us. And the reason he demands full surrender from us is that because he wants to give to us his all. He wants total commitment from us because he wants to be totally committed to us. And this giving of ourselves to him, surrendering of ourselves to him, is not a once and for all experience. At different points in our lives, there will be different areas we need to surrender. And sometimes we'll give to him what he asks, and then we'll take it back. And then we need to give it back again. So life for us may be a series of surrender and acts of obedience. So I want to close with a very simple exercise. As we pray, I'd like us to just hold our hands uh, like this. Um, and as we pray, I'm going to ask you to slowly open up your hands. Because when we open our hands, we are opening up our hands to release to God what is holding us back from following Him. But the irony of opening our hands to release is when we are opening our hands also to receive. And we can't receive until we release. So we're going to pray, and as we pray, let's open our hands to the Lord and release to Him maybe that last 10% that we're holding back, or even the last, the last 1% we're holding back. That one thing. And to tell the Lord, I'm willing to give it to you. And if you're not willing, perhaps you can pray the prayer, God, make me willing. Shall we pray? Let's take a few moments as we close our hands to ask ourselves, what is it that we are holding in our hands that we find it so difficult to surrender to the Lord? For this rich young ruler, it was his wealth. For us, it could be something else. It could be a person. It could be a thing. It could be something abstract, like our reputation, our popularity. What is it that you're holding in your hands that you find difficult to give to the Lord? Remember the ironies of today's passage. It is not what you lack. It is what you have. You don't have to do more or have more. You just need to do less and have less. One last thing to hold on to. Just give it to the Lord. Let us open our hands to the Lord so that we can release the one thing, the one person to Jesus and say, Lord, I'm willing. 
I'll say to the Lord, I'm not willing, but I'm willing to be made willing. If you were to make me willing, I'm willing to give it up. And as we keep our hands open, we're now ready to receive. The Lord is going to give to us much more than we have given to Him. God is always faithful to His promise. And Jesus gives us His word. He says, I tell you the truth. Jesus does not make promises lightly. He will fulfill His promise in your life. That whatever you give to Him, He will return to you manifold. So Lord, we re release to you what you ask of us. And we receive from you what you give to us. We remember your words that with men it is impossible, but with you all things are possible. It may be very difficult for us to do it. But Lord, with you, all things are possible. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name. Amen.